Welcome to Guidepost, the cutting-edge podcast series produced by The CRISPR Journal. Hello, I'm Kevin Davis, Executive Editor of The CRISPR Journal. Thanks for joining us. Coming up today, my interview with Luciano Marafini of the Rockefeller University. Guidepost, brought to you by The CRISPR Journal, publishing the latest research, analysis, and opinion in the field of CRISPR biology and genome editing. Cutting-edge science at crisperjournal.com. It has been a whirlwind 12 months or so for Luciano Marafini, the Argentinian expat microbiologist at the Rockefeller University. He was appointed an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, elected to the National Academy of Sciences, and secured tenure. Marafini first emerged as one of the heroes of CRISPR, working with Eric Sontheimer at Northwestern University about a decade ago. He was also a key collaborator with Feng Zhang, a partnership that began in January 2012 over email, culminating in the seminal demonstration of human genome editing 12 months later. The Rockefeller University, with its amazing history in microbiology and genetics, appears to be the perfect setting for Marafini. In this interview, we discuss the major roles he's played in the development of CRISPR genome editing and look at the future as well. Joining me on Guidepost today is Luciano Marafini at the Rockefeller University. Luciano, thank you so much for the invitation oh, to come and talk to you. It's my pleasure. You've had a fabulous uh, year, it would appear, appointment to the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, uh, election into the National Academy of Sciences, and tenure. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, it was a, an incredible year. I don't, I don't think there's going to be another one like this. <laughs> But I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So uh, we'd love to spend a few minutes talking about the evolution of your interest in CRISPR and some of the very uh, seminal publications that you've been involved in along the way over the past decade or so. You're originally from Argentina. That's right. And uh, what brought you to the United States? So I studied biochemistry as an undergrad, and I always... From the beginning of my undergrad studies, I started liking research and science. So when I finished my uh, school, I decided to apply to American schools for yes. PhD. And I yes. uh, was fortunate to get accepted at the University of Chicago, which is where I ended up doing my PhD. Right. You hadn't heard of CRISPR at this point, though. No, this is... No, no, no. But it was during the course of my PhD. So I started my yeah. PhD in 2002 in the laboratory of Olaf Schneewind, studying bacterial pathogenesis. And we studied Staphylococcus aureus pathogenesis, and yes. as well as um, Bacillus entraces yes. uh, pathogenesis. It yes. was that time when the anthrax scare yeah. was taken very seriously, and so there was a lot of funding for research on anthrax. And I think that during my PhD, there was a professor at the University of Chicago, his name is Malcolm Casadavan, mm-hmm. He passed away, unfortunately. Mm. And um, but he uh, introduced me to CRISPR. He ah. used to go around Olaf lab talking to different people. That, yeah. And he was one of these persons that gets very excited about many different things in science. So he had very wide interests. Yes. Uh, but he needed always uh, something an ear uh, to <laughs> to exchange or yes. maybe to monologue sometimes yes. uh, his ideas. But one day, I don't know, he came to my bench and he started talking about, he knew about the bioinformatic uh, studies on CRISPR and the kind of the... Uh, the Mexica, the, the uh, Yes, and, and, uh, and Kooning uh, and Bolotin and the possibility that this was, at the time was... 
everything that I impression that I received was this is another uh, similar to restriction systems right yes. so malcolm was a phage person he yes. developed very cool technology in the 80s called mu transposons okay. which uh, enabled lots of genetics uh, screens because phage mu can integrate randomly in the genome and he made it to integrate randomly in the genome and so you can knock out genes in e coli and so he was very much savvy on phage bacteria interaction restriction and even technology so he found crispr had the possibility of having something programmable at yes. the time it seemed to be was very exciting yeah. i assume that for a lot of people but this is how i came into it i see and then i think that when i was finishing my PhD, I didn't know exactly what to do. And I had a couple of postdoc interviews yes. and I was not fully convinced. Yes. So I decided to give it a, a try to CRISPR ah. to try to see if this prediction that it was a defense system yes. that will prevent phage or plastic yes. infection was true. And I think this is one of those things that, you know, you have to be a little bit lucky. So I was training staphylococcal genetics and yeah. so my natural instinct was immediately to look at whether there's any staphylococcus that has a CRISPR system yeah. and then I was confident that if there is one I should be able to mutants or you know test it yeah. somehow yeah so th there is one I found one it's called staphylococcus epidermidis okay and now we know it has a type 3 system uh -huh. and uh, one of the spacers match a conjugated plasmid okay. that is commonly spread among staphylococci and I think this is, was a little bit of luck because I think at the same time that I was doing this Rudolf was probably finishing or working of course on CRISPR mutant against phages so the 2007 the 2000 science, science paper, paper. Et al. exactly yes. the first experimental yes. paper on CRISPR. So yeah. I think that it was good that I, even without knowing who Rudolf <laughs> was, I, I started working on plasmids, which yeah. kind of gave me, otherwise I would have been scooped. That's what I'm saying yeah. by Rudolf, because I probably, we started, I don't know, probably we started later than that. But uh, and that started, study that you referenced was that published around the same time? This, yes, your your study with Staphylococcus. Well, the study with Staphylococcus transitioned into a postdoc with Eric Samhain. Got it. So in my last year of grad school, I made the mutants and yeah. deleted what had to be deleted, the controls, and then I was able to demonstrate or have good data showing that this particular spacer and CRISPR system they prevent the transfer of conjugated plasmids into staphylococci. Yeah. So with that data, I kind of went to Eric and I said, look, Eric at the time was working on RNA interference, which is what all the bioinformatic papers were kind of predicting, that yeah. it was this was like RNAi in bacteria, which it seemed like a good prediction because it was um, small mediated by small RNAs and yes. there's no RNAi in bacteria, right? Yes. So maybe this is this was the missing link. Yes. So Eric was working at very good publications on yes. RNAi in Drosophila in Northwestern. And so I went to him and said, look, I sent my formal application, but then we met. Yeah. And... Of course, he's just up the road, so that helps. Right, yeah. so that helped. And I had some geographical, some interest in staying in Chicago. Uh -huh. And so Eric looked at the data, and, you know, he probably looked at papers and learned everything that could be learned at that time on CRISPR was not that much. And he immediately got on board. I think mm. that he saw the same thing I and, and some others right. that started very early 
sawing CRISPR, something really, really cool. And and so he accepted me in, into his lab. I am very grateful to Eric because uh, he, you know, it, it was it was a um, it was a, a jump in, yes. in a little bit of jump in the dark. Nobody knew what this. I'm sure it was going to be an interesting thing or yeah. something rather trivial. I'm sure the feeling is mutual. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah, uh, um, but he was not a microbiology but lab. He, right, he so was you, not a microbiology a lab. For him too. He had to open a new line of research in his lab, which yeah. now that I am a PI, I think it's my lab works on CRISPR and anything yeah. else. I think there's a there's an inertia to to work on things that we know and yeah. we are used to. He didn't have, of course, funding to work on CRISPR, right. and, and nevertheless, he he accepted me and and he helped me write. Uh, we got two things with Eric. We got a, a small, uh, I think, I believe it was an R thirty one, which is a small uh, NIH grant. Okay. And then I also put up an application for a postdoctoral fellowship with Jane Coffin Charles, which also was accepted. Yeah. So that was kind of the initial funding that we yeah. needed. Yeah. And then it, it was in Eric's lab that we really pursued the idea of DNA targeting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, versus RNA targeting. Yeah. And of course, that led to one of the the milestone papers in the early I, I history think so. of CRISPR, right? So, how what what stands out as you look back at that uh, particular? Well, well I think that time? what stands out is many things are interesting to me. The paper is very clear at the end that if CRISPR are programmable, I think we use the term DNA destruction systems. They, they have many biotechnological applications yeah. and. I think that that's, in the end, that turned out to be yeah. true, and it's not a minor biotechnological yeah. application. It's, it's something that is going to change the world, right? So right. I think that is a very good feeling. Yeah. Another thing that is interesting is, to me, it's, uh, you know, I always was a very much of a champion of DNA targeting by CRISPR systems, but then after many years of research, well, there are RNA systems that target RNA. And so I think I learned also how science, you know, is never definitive. And that's the beauty of it, right? right. And there's even these type 3 systems, actually, they use guide RNAs to recognize RNA and then cleave the DNA. Right. So I think that that's something also that I think yeah. I learned. And I think that I have to give credit to Eric that when we wrote the paper, me as a postdoc, you know, not like very much experience in writing. And yeah. He put a lot of cautionary uh, sentences, like if this is happened, right. if right. then this is. So I think that that paper really also taught me to, you need to be, you know, just present all yes. the possibilities, not discard what you cannot discard. Yeah. And this was 2008, 2000? Right. The paper was submitted in the summer of 2008, I accepted yes. in November. Yes. Yeah. And so now, by this point, obviously, following a year or so after the Barangu et al. paper, now yeah. the CRISPR is really... Um... Yeah, so I think that that's also something that I, I have also to say that Rudolf's paper in 2007, of course, it has a lot of implications, but for me personally, I think it was a, a very positive, a very yeah. encouraging yeah. Very, very encouraging to see. Yeah. So uh, as I said before, I was happy that I was not scooped, that yeah. I still have work to present on plasmids. But more importantly, I saw that CRISPR was very interesting, not only to me, to because yeah. the paper was published in Science. Yeah. 
And I think that also probably helped Eric to make the decision of um, jumping, right. doing, yes, let's, right. I, I'll take this guy. You know, science publication. Then also Jill Banfield had another science publication in yes. early 2008. Yes. You know, these are high, very high profile papers. Yeah. So I felt, to me, it was very encouraging. I, I yeah. Especially the 2007 paper, it made me feel like I was in studying something that not only I thought it was yes. uh, cool and interesting, that probably other people did. Too. Yes. So with that success, uh, working with Eric, well, before we get on to your, your next move, yeah. um, we should just briefly mention that sort of spilling out from that paper, I know that, uh, I don't know if you, how much you were involved, but Eric was preparing a big grant uh, proposal right, right, right. and I think perhaps even a patent as well, neither of which fared that well at that time. What, what do you remember of that? Yeah, so, so I remember everything, of course, when <laughs> these things get, um, if it was any other grant, you, you forget immediately, yeah. right? Yeah. But this, this one we, you want. And, what, was, uh, what, was, what was special about this application? What? Well, I, I think there's two things. One is was the, the patent application. And I think that the patent application is, is a very, I think, important document. I think that it also became public after a while. Yes. I think it's important in the sense that with the 2008 paper, it also provides some of the first ideas of uh, applications from gene editing yeah. and DNA, yeah. programmable DNA uh, yeah. destruction. Regarding the grant and regarding the patent, going back to the patent, it's unfortunate that we couldn't pursue it. I think that it was a little bit early. We were working with this type 3 system, right? And Yes. Um, I think that uh, probably, well, we didn't have enough data. Did you, at this point, look for a second postdoc or did you feel that you had enough scientific success that you could now look for a junior faculty position? Yeah, I, I, I thought that that was, that there was enough for having my own lab. Yeah. I, I think that CRISPR as a field was just opening yeah. and there were so many things to do that... Yeah. And I think that CRISPR had lots of, and still has, right, lots of very unique features that immediately attract scientists that are interested in science. Yes. Adaptive immunity in prokaryotes, uh, RNA-guided nucleases. Those two things alone go a long, long way when you, or at least went a long way when I interviewed for for jobs. Right. Because I think they were very attractive. Right. Very little was known. I had a system that uh, it was perfect. I had all the tools and yes. it seems like the system was working. It was working. And so I think it made me a successful candidate. Yes. Yeah. So we know where you ended up, obviously. Yes. We're here. Mm-hmm. We're in New York, uh, the Rockefeller. But did you also interview at Harvard? Because it must have been around this point that you met Feng Zhang and we come to the next part of the story. No, I never met him until I was uh, here at Rockefeller. Yeah, I, I interviewed at Harvard or at yeah. MIT. Yeah. Um, I still have a very high regard for MIT because that was kind of the other offer that uh, I see. It was yes. uh, difficult to turn down. And yeah, Yale and many, yeah. many NIH. Well, what swung it for for you to come here then? I think a little bit of a family reasons. Yeah. I think that um, New York is, of course, very very international. We yes. are immigrants, and my wife really liked uh, the idea of living in New York. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what in the end did the balance. I see. Yeah. Right. 
Right. Um, so you came here. What's, what year did you establish your lab? Here? We started here in 2010. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, how did the collaboration with Fung begin? So he emailed me. And I remember it was uh, very early in 2012. Uh, I think it was 1st of January or yeah. something like that. It was still during the, the holiday break. And I think that's another example of how the paper in 2008 with Eric really put at least some people pay attention to, and Fang was one of them. Yeah. Uh, he mentioned in his email, I, I read your work on Staphylococcus and the, you know, the CRISPR systems that target uh, destroy DNA, and I would like to use it for gene editing in human yeah. cells. Would you like to collaborate? And I immediately said yes. I, I remember very excited about the email, being very excited about the email. I had to Google who, who, who Fang was. <laughs> he had all the credentials. He'd been working in genome editing. And so uh, it was a very good collaboration. Uh, yeah. You know, we were just two very young PIs, one with the expertise on gene editing. I had all the expertise on CRISPR. And yeah. I think we teamed up and we created something that I think I'm very proud of. It will revolutionize. And prior to his email, this is very, very interesting. You gene editing as a... As yes. an application of CRISPR, so, so, you talk about DNA destruction, but that's right, no, yes. Yeah, so that's the part that also something interesting. So when I started the lab, I started with the Type Three system, and it continued what I was doing with Eric Lab. Yeah. Quickly, we transitioned to Type Two, and that was more of a something that I wanted to do. Being here at Rockefeller, so Rockefeller has many famous scientists, but I think one of the ones that I admire is. Oswald Avery, who in the 30s and 40s demonstrated yeah. that DNA is the molecule that carries the genetic information. And he did that. Yeah. Right. And yeah. he did that by studying the transformation of pneumococci, Streptococcus pneumonia. Okay. So when I came here, I decided to check if CRISPR could prevent the DNA uptake that pneumococcus does. And so I repeated kind of all the Avery experiments, but I had to put a CRISPR system into Streptococcus pneumonia. Streptococcus pneumonia, there's no, I don't think there's any strain that carries CRISPR. Okay. So the closest to Streptococcus pneumonia that I could find was Streptococcus pyogenes. Yeah. And so that's how I started working on Strep pyogenes uh, Cas9. So I put it into pneumococci, and yeah. this was in 2011. And we started doing all these Avery experiments that end up being um, uh, Avery. And, and even we did the previous experiment, the Griffith experiment, yes. which is the famous experiment of transformation yes. in mice. And so we published that paper in Cell Host and Micro. But along 2011 and 2012, we've been working with Cas9. And we, right. we were very familiar with you know how to program it because we had to program Cas9 to target the genes that we wanted, the, the capsule genes, because pneumococcal transformation involves streptococcus pneumonia. They don't have a capsule gene, so they form yeah. very little colonies. When they acquire the capsule genes... They yeah. form these big and glossy colonies, and also these are pathogenic. So the idea was to transform pneumococci with these capsule genes. And of course, the Streptococcus pyogenes system doesn't naturally target the capsule genes right. of pneumococci. So we program it. And so we learned in the course of 2011, 2012, very well how to program Cas9 against yeah. any DNA that we wanted to. And what's interesting is that also my student, when Yan Jiang and my postdoc, David Bicard, David is now a professor of Pasteur in France, they, when they started playing with this, 
immediately they saw that we, we can make mutants mm. in pneumococci. Mm. And this is a funny story that has <laughs> never been public. But uh, I'm ashamed that the both of them pressed for, let's publish this method of making mutants with CRISPR-Cas9. And I say, well, I don't know. There, there's too many methods to make mutants in pneumococci. Yeah. I'm not sure that uh, this will be like a big deal or a big yeah. paper. Yeah. And I think that uh, that makes sense being just a starting lab. You try to do the most significant science and you, you have very limited resources. At the time, I had only four people or three people in the lab. Mm. And mm. So you have to you know, decide which projects you're mm. going to prioritize very carefully at that time of when you're just starting the lab. So we passed on that, which, of course, it would have been gene editing of eukaryotic cells, but it could have been the first gene editing paper using Cas9. <laughs> but at the same time, things work out. Things work out. <laughs> Okay. okay. And you mentioned your choice of pyogenes. Mm -hmm. Was that influenced by, when I think of that, I think of that's the organism that Charpentier had been yeah. using. Was it clear that this was a very tractable system? Um, there's two aspects. One is that I think in, in 2010, Emmanuel published that paper. Yeah. And so... Uh, this is the tracer RNA. The tracer yes. RNA paper. And so um, I felt confident that I understood which genes were, what was required yeah. to transport yeah. the Cas9 system yeah. from one organism to another. Now we, we see it as, as trivial, but it's not that trivial because if you need, who knows, maybe you need some other genes than Cas9. And, yeah. But at the time with the description of the tracer, it fell out, oh, these probably are the yeah. the minimal system, which, yeah. by the way, is what I told Fang when he contacted me, because uh -huh. he kind of in his email cited my previous work on yeah. staphylococci, and yeah. I said, no, 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 we've been working with Cas9, um, uh, okay. biogenist. This yeah. is the one that I, we're able to transport it into a different organism. Of course, the jump is not the same as jumping into yeah. eukaryotic cells, but at least it's something. Yeah. And we know how to program it, the PAM, the, yeah. everything is working so well. I think yeah. this is what we need to use. Yeah. And uh, I'll let him ask whether that was uh, important. Persuasive, for, for yes. Persuasive yeah. or not. Um, which I think was what, in the end what we published, right? right. That paper with Fang is uh, right. mostly based on pyogenes Cas9. Right. Right. So Emmanuel's paper was, I think, uh, it gave me the confidence that I kind of understood the system. Yeah. The other part, I think, is, is the environment at Rockefeller. So Rockefeller has the largest collection in the world of strep pyogenes strains. There was a, a scientist uh, Rockefeller early, even before Avery, Rebecca Lansfield. Okay. And she uh, is one of the mothers, so to speak, yes. of uh, serotyping. So she collected uh, both serum and bacteria That's from sense. people infected with strep infections. Yeah. And using the serotype, she was yeah. able to, to see which, which serum reacted to which different yeah. isolates, and she established a classification. Yeah which was very important, not only for strep, but also for, for other diseases yeah. that follow the same kind of methodology. Yeah. And so from the, we have a collection here from the late 1800s of strep wow. biogenes, which at some point I think we're going to sequence and see maybe there's some other Cas9s in wow, there or yes. something. Sure. 
So we have 5,000 strains, and there's another famous lab of Rockefeller, is Vince Fischetti. He is the one that now inherited the Streptiogenes collection. Okay. And so I felt that they are, Vince Lab is a number one lab in the world about that study strep, Pyogenes. So yeah. I felt also confident yes. that, okay, so I have a colleague here. A that, small lab, but a big support yeah, system. That if maybe, you need. maybe if, yeah, maybe if things go wrong, which they usually <laughs> do in science. Not go wrong, but they get hard. Sure. I have an expert here that can help me with this experiment. So those were the reasons why to move yeah. into Biogenes Cas9. Yeah. So your uh, collaboration with Fung begins in early 2012 right. and obviously peaks 12 months later with the right. publication. Right, right. And I think, as I recall, the authors were all from Fung's lab with the addition of yourself. As a so student. You said, oh, there's a student of yours too. Yeah, because oh. we, did, uh, we did a lot of checks. Uh, as you can imagine, um, transporting the, the system from bacteria into human cells, you're a little bit in the dark. So especially you need to put the nuclear localization signals, right. you need to target different targets. Right. Again, everything seems very simple now, but at the time we didn't know. So we, we perform routinely checks, so for example, if Cas9 with a nuclear localization signal, does it work in bacteria? Yeah. So if it works in bacteria, then you have the, the green light to to move it. You have at least the hope that yes. it will still work in in human cells. If yeah. immediately after putting this sequence in Cas9, it stops working in bacteria, yeah. then you know that it's not going to no work. So, yeah. so we did those kind of checks. So yeah. for example, also we checked different targets, which now again, it seems very trivial that, yes. well, Cas9 cleaves anything, but we wanted to cleave a particular locus of yes. human HEC-299 cells. So we wanted to make sure that Cas9 was able to actually target and cleave yeah. that DNA yeah. because, and then if that happens in bacteria, then yeah. again, we feel confident that yeah. the effort is worth uh, in trying to. And obviously you have to wait for the experimental proof, but did you have uh, and you're a microbiologist right. by training, but on a scale of one to 10, how confident were you that you thought this was going to work in human cells? Were you in fact um, encouraged by the fact that we know that zinc finger motifs and talons uh, are also able to work in that context? Well, I think it was not... That wasn't a consideration. No, or... or... I don't think we thought too much about it. Yeah. I think we were not af afraid of not working. But of course, we didn't have any, it's what yeah. I'm trying to say, I don't think we would have stopped yeah. at doing the experiments just because it seems difficult but or unlikely that it was going to work. At the same time, you know, human chromatin That's has, what I'm guessing is, at. is yes. very complex. Yeah. And what if Cas9 is kicked off of the human DNA by all these structures that are, of course, not present in phages or bacterial chromosomes? It could have not worked. It could have done, yeah. But I don't think we had that worry yeah. in mind. I think that uh, we were going to try and, yeah. and try and try. Fortunately, we didn't give yeah. up because obviously it didn't work immediately, yes. right? So we started the collaboration in 2012, and I think that yeah. it took several months to start working. Yeah. And do you recall when the idea for the single guide RNA, when that became a practical, realistic part of the system? Well, no, I recall uh, Davna Charpentier paper. Uh, that's when yeah. we all learn about the single guide RNA. Yeah. I think that was came out in June, August. Or, uh, uh, in print, in or maybe in July, August. But yeah, I think but in, I think in, in, in online in, in, in late, June. In late yeah. June. 
So for us, for Feng and I, um, I uh, at that time, I don't remember exactly. Of course, it's it's a um, it's an improvement of the system, yeah. right? So you now instead of having to deal with three elements, so the, the guide RNA, the tracer RNA, and Cas9. But at the time that the paper came out, I think that we already were we started working with the three component system, yes. right? So so we, everything was cloned as a three component system. So I don't think we switched immediately. In the end, after seeing the paper, we recognized the value of the single guide yeah. RNA. So I think yeah. there's a figure in the paper or part of the paper or a subsequent paper where we use the yeah. single guide. But I think that the first experiments, are, they're all using yeah. uh, three components. Right, right. So your science paper comes out very early in January of 2013. Right. Do you recall what, what was the reaction of the community and your colleagues? That was that uh, George Church had related and similar findings in the same issue. I remember uh, speaking at a Rockefeller faculty meeting. Yeah. And people got really, really excited. Yeah. I spoke most of my... So in the end, this idea that David and Wen Jiang, my postdoc and student, had of using CRISPR for gene editing in bacteria, we we did end up writing a paper. Yeah. So that was published also in early 2013. Yeah. In Nature Biotechnology. Yes. And so I think that's the first bacterial use of gene editing using Cas9. And so I mostly I mostly talk about bacterial gene editing with Cas9, which was kind of the experience that we did mostly in my lab in collaboration with FAN, but mostly in my lab. But then at the end, I said, and this also works very well in eukaryotes, and here is yeah. the data, and then yeah. FAN's paper. And then I, that, people say, ooh, this is... Because <laughs> I think, you know, we think that when we publish papers, everybody reads them, but that's not true, right? So I don't think that people immediately got the... The message. <laughs> the, yeah, or, or, or got the idea of how revolutionary... Yeah, right this was going to be right. and, and and there's no nobody to blame i mean yeah. i think it's at the beginning it was just one more right. cool technique and we'll right. see how how useful it right. is and but i think that very quickly what i do remember was that very quickly in 2013 maybe march april i started receiving emails from my colleagues here at rockefeller saying uh -huh. We're going to try this. Yeah. We need advice. And then shortly after, the emails were, this is amazing. It works incredibly well. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that is very... I see it in student applications. I'm part of the... Sometimes I have to review undergrads that yeah. apply for PhD position here yes. at Rockefeller, yes. for the PhD program. And many of the letters of recommendation say, we gave this undergrad the, the task of trying CRISPR and see if it worked. And he or she did a fantastic work and set it up for my lab. And that, I think, to me, is a, is a very good measurement of how revolutionary and, yeah. and good is this technique. Because, yeah. again, the, the science papers of Charge and Fangs, at the beginning, probably they, they've been seen... As, okay, this is an interesting technique, but not not everybody will jump. Kind of somebody who's doing gene editing yeah. of cells will completely shift the research program yeah. from Talens, let's say, to CRISPR at that time, right. just because there's a paper. Right. What they want is to try it. Everybody does the right. same, right? We'll try it and see how it works. And it right. turns out that I think it's in general labs, you know, everybody has their own projects. And so when you need to try new things that may or may not work, you yeah. put sometimes undergrads or yeah. rotation students, people that are not 
perhaps the most experienced yeah. in the lab. Yeah. But with CRISPR-Cas9, at least the evidence that I have from these PhD applications, yeah. even the undergrads that had very little research experience, they yeah. were able to make it work, which I think it's a reflection of how powerful of and easy is the, the technology. Yeah. A number of um, companies have emerged using mm -hmm. the technology that you helped uh, launch. Um, and you're a co-founder of one of them, right? Intellia. Intellia what, how did right. you get involved with Intellia? And tell us a little bit about your hopes uh, for what the company is doing. So Intellia was mainly uh, the idea of venture capitalist Nessan Birmingham. And yeah. He very early on, I remember, he wanted to speak with me. And I'm sure that he tried to speak with other people in CRISPR field. Yeah. But I think that he saw the potential very early on. And then he decided to launch a, yeah. a company, right? And he came uh, to visit you here? Yes, yeah. he, he came. To, we had a conversation. Yeah. We had lunch and yeah. he expressed me the views for the company yeah. and a company dedicated to human gene therapy and that he believed that this was the right time and yeah. the right moment yeah. uh, that CRISPR was going to give that area of research a, a very big push. Yeah. Uh, he, I think he was right on all of his predictions. And, yes. And so when he finally got, I think that after talking to scientists, he got even more convinced, I guess, and um, looked for capital to, yeah. to start the company. And when yeah. that happened, he invited yeah. me and Rudolf and Eric and Jennifer to join the company. Yeah. And, and um, I think that it's the dream of almost every scientist to, I mean, maybe it's not the dream, but it's something that we all value very much, right? So if we can give back to society in any way, I think it's very important that, yeah. If the CRISPR technologies, either the the basic research that I did or the company that I founded, co-founded, helped developing yeah. cures or yeah. even a small number of genetic diseases, I think it would be yeah. really an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. What will be the secret, do you think, of Intellia's success, your hopes for the company? Is it the people or the strategy or the delivery platform or the choice of therapeutic targets? I think the people, I think I've always been very impressed, uh, the people that is uh, in charge. And every time I go there, I, uh, I meet them. I come back very, very impressed. And yeah. I think that's that's one of the most important. I have confidence in the company because I see the people that are working on yes. it. Uh, and of course, they have made very good advances, yeah. which is a reflection of having good people. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll see. Right. Are there some programs that you're particularly uh, optimistic about or? No, I, th I think in, in general, the, the company has uh, many different interests and yeah. projects. And of course, I'm, I'm biased, but I see a, a very strong company yes. in all of these yeah. different points. Yeah. Well, we, we wish it the best. Let's in the last few minutes talk about the current scope of research programs. I'm guessing that you've moved on beyond Cas9 and uh, yes, into and, many other... And type 3. And I think that's the goal of the lab is to understand the mechanistic level, all the different CRISPR systems yeah. that there are. And so we talked in this interview about type 2, type 3, yeah. but there are actually type, six different types. Yeah. And um, many times I think that we were very lucky to have uh, people like Eugene Kooning that uh, does an amazing job at discovering these new types or variants of CRISPR. Yes. 
And so we we love to characterize them, right? And so we make a, an effort to try to characterize them in their native host or, or how yeah. they work in bacteria. So we did that recently with type 6. So we, uh -huh. we showed uh, how type 6 works, which this is one of the exclusively RNA targeting systems. Right. And they, they actually don't protect by killing the invader. They mostly protect by killing the cell that is infected. It's more eukaryotic-like type oh. of defense, some sort of apoptosis-like, where the cell that is infected goes down and the phage goes down as well. So, oh. And so I think it's a new way of, uh, it's kind of a new strategy for, huh. for CRISPR systems. So that's just an example. I think yeah. that we try to explore this diversity of CRISPR systems. I'm also interested in the other side of the coin. So CRISPR basically is an anti-phage and anti-plasmid, but mainly, I think, defense system against uh, viral infections. Yes. And viruses of bacteria and archaea are the most diverse organism, if you consider it an organism, on Earth. And so I think it would be good to start focusing on how different phages, instead yeah. of doing how the same phages are defended by different CRISPR systems, maybe take one CRISPR system and see how it, whether it can and how it Mm. defend against very different mm. phages that have very different lifestyles mm. and lytic cycles. And I think we probably there are going to be some surprises there. I don't think that this is something that we in my lab do exclusively. There are, of course, other labs that are, yeah. are also interested in the idea, but I think it's something that is probably one of the next uh, yeah. steps yeah. in terms of the biology yeah. of the field. Yeah, I think that also archaea are relatively different than bacteria. And yeah. And there, of course, there's very good uh, research performing in archaea on CRISPR, but some of the aspects that we uncovered in bacteria that linked CRISPR to, for example, DNA repair systems of the host, then in archaea, because archaea have different DNA repair systems completely, they are more eukaryotic-like. Yeah. Then the question is up there of how maybe Archaea will synergize the DNA repair systems with the yeah. CRISPR system. The CRISPR yeah. systems are the same both in Archaea and bacteria for the most part, yeah. but the DNA repair systems are very different. Uh, yes. The phages are also very different. Yeah. So I, I have some sort of personal maybe curiosity yeah. about Archaea that, yeah. that maybe it's something that I am interested in pursuing. Yeah. You mentioned that we have now six systems. Is that going to be the last word, or do you I, think, I think there you will have be... to ask Eugene? But uh, <laughs> probably not. <laughs>